Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Zeitcast. This is episode five. Thanks so much for those of you that already hung around for the first few days. We're having such a good time. And I do want to say right out of the gate, um, I love your feedback. So please stay in touch on Twitter at The Boy on the Bike or Instagram, Jonathan A. Martin, uh, YouTube, wherever. Um, love to hear from you guys. Uh, we're certainly going to have more guests. I don't think I've mentioned yet. I'm actually getting ready to go to Ireland. Um, today's Wednesday. I'm going tomorrow. So that's going to be exciting, and we're going to have some really fantastic guests from there and just some cool stuff I think you guys will really enjoy. So lots to come. Um, today in particular, I just want to share a few thoughts. We lost a national treasure a couple days ago. Uh, Tony Morrison, the beloved writer, died at 88 years old. Uh, what, what a genius. Um, I know many of you, like me, have been deeply marked by her work. And so I thought it would just be appropriate today to take a few minutes to talk about Toni Morrison, and talk about a book in particular, actually it's her first novel, that has continued to linger and haunt me, and especially in terms of how I think about the cross, the cross of Christ, um, it, it's just the passage that comes to me often, and that I just have never been able to shake loose. Um, I don't know how many of you might have read her first novel, it's called The Bluest Eye, which by the way, for any aspiring or fledgling writers out there, here's something I find deeply encouraging. Toni Morrison published her first novel, The Bluest Eye, right before she turned 40. She was 39, I think, when it came out. So that's pretty amazing because it is a masterwork. It is truly a classic, truly a masterpiece. The fact that her, but that she didn't write the first one until she was 40, I find very encouraging as, as a writer. But um, The Bluest Eye is is really, it's, it's a beautiful book, but it's haunting. It's difficult. I hate to give too much away. But the chief character of the book, uh, Piccola Breedlove, is, is this really tragic character. Um, I actually was uh, just in reflecting on Toni Morrison's life and legacy, watched an interview with her recently where she talked about the book and uh, a bit about where that came from, how especially when that book came out in 1970, it was a time where um, there was a lot of conversation about black pride and a lot of, in, in a kind of a healthy way. And she talked specifically about how a lot of black men were writing these books that were very strong and there's a strong sense of black identity and black is beautiful. Um, but what she wanted to do with her first book was kind of take a step back and to kind of go into that part of consciousness where uh, that place where for a lot of people um, there wasn't that sense of owning one's identity. And so this character, Piccolo in particular, um, she is black, but she's obsessed with Ch Shirley Temple. And she thinks that if she could have blue eyes, that that would be everything, that people would accept her, that people would like her. And you see through the course of the book how um, everybody in her life ultimately abandons her. Her father rapes and impregnates her. Her mother essentially ignores her. Her community ultimately looks away. It's really, really a difficult, but again, such an important book. And there's a passage right towards the end that describes the, the dismantling of this character, sort of the unraveling of Piccola and the way that everybody else in her life um, kind of uses her that has stuck with me if, on, on so many levels. I wanted to share it with you today because I think it's, it's important. And I, I probably think about this passage about once a week at least for different reasons. But it goes like this from Toni Morrison's The Blue Side. And the years folded up like pocket handkerchiefs. Sammy left town long ago. Charlie, who's Piccola's father, died in the workhouse. Mrs. Breedlove still does housework. 
And Piccola is somewhere in that little brown house she and her mother moved to on the edge of town, where you can see her even now, once in a while. The bird-like gestures are worn away to a mere picking, and plucking her way between the tire rims and the sunflowers, between Coke bottles and milkweed, among all the waste and beauty of the world, which is what she herself was. All of our waste, which we dumped on her, and which she absorbed, and all of our beauty, which was hers first, and which she gave to us. Listen to this. All of us, all who knew her, felt so wholesome after we cleansed ourselves on her. We were so beautiful when we stood astride her ugliness. Her simplicity decorated us. Her guilt sanctified us. Her pain made us glow with health. Her awkwardness made us think we had a sense of humor. Her inarticulateness made us believe we were eloquent. Her poverty kept us generous. Even her waking dreams we used to silence our own nightmares. And she led us and thereby deserved our contempt. We honed our egos on her, padded our characters with her frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And fantasy it was, for we were not strong, only aggressive. We were not free, merely licensed. We were not compassionate, we were polite. Not good, but well-behaved. We courted death in order to call ourselves brave and hid like thieves from life. We substituted good grammar for intellect. We switched habits to simulate maturity. We rearranged lies and called it truth, seeing in the new pattern of an old idea of the revelation and the word. Difficult passage, but one that has haunted me since the first time I read it, probably 15 years ago. And I think the thing that always has struck me about it, so you have this depiction of a character where everybody in her life uses her in some way. We cleansed ourselves on her. Uh, by comparison to her weakness, we felt strong. Um, her awkwardness made us feel articulate, like all of that. And I don't know if this is going to seem like a hard right turn or something here, but somehow this passage has over the years uniquely illuminated how I think about the cross of Jesus. Because I have to say, I think about the cross of Christ a lot differently than I did when I was young. Um, I mean, I think growing up the product of the church, uh, being a preacher's kid, my grandfather was a preacher, all that. The cross has always been central and the idea of Jesus on the cross has always been important to me, but it's, it's shifted so much because, you know, the way that I used to think about the cross, which I think is what a lot of people are just sort of born into. It's kind of in the ethos if you're in sort of more evangelical culture is I had this image of you've got God, the father, who's the mean, stern one who's concerned with justice. And then you've got God, the son, who's Jesus who kind of steps in front of the blows of the angry father, almost like a battered wife. And so um, we're sort of hiding behind Jesus, who's willing to take the hot wrath of the father. And there's kind of this good cop, bad cop between God the father and God the son. But in this whole scenario, 
Um, what's what was very clear to me was that God the Father didn't really have want anything to do with me. You know, it's like God the Father. He's the one who needs his sense of justice to be satiated, to be satisfied in some way. Only pouring out that wrath by beating Jesus to death is going to do that somehow. So he pours out all the punishment on Jesus. And and that's kind of how the cross works. Like Jesus is the one who, you know, at this point in my life, I, I just could not believe that that's further from the truth. Because what I've really come to believe is it's not... God the Father who scapegoats Jesus. First of all, that's heresy because what we have in Jesus, God himself is the one who's on the cross reconciling the world to himself. That Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of God for those of us who are Christians. But beyond that, I think um, what, what's, and I think this is really kind of what's illuminated here. It, it gives me a very different perspective on something like Isaiah 53, the famous text in the Old Testament that uh, speaks prophetically about the suffering servant, um, which again, as Christians, we sort of reinterpret in the light of Jesus. It's not God the Father who's, who's doing this to Jesus. We're the ones who do this to Jesus. The simple message of the cross in uh, Acts, because keep in mind that Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel. So in that whole Luke-Acts narrative, um, there's not yet this full throttle atonement theology. What you have is Peter, for example, preaching on the day of Pentecost says, God sent you Jesus of Nazareth. You killed him, but God has raised him from the dead. Um, God is the one doing this to Jesus. We're the one doing this to Jesus. We're the one who scapegoat Jesus. Some of you might be familiar with the work of Rene Girard, was an amazing uh, French literary uh, critic and philosopher. If you've not read Rene Girard, by the way, I would highly recommend. Um, the best place to start for sure is a book called I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning. That's a great, great introduction to Girard. But Girard has been very important here because part of what Girard, the genius of Girard, is he sees how in the biblical narrative that part of what the story of the cross does is it illuminates the very scapegoating mechanism. You know, Paul has this whole riff in the New Testament about how the cross exposes principalities and powers. It's like the scapegoating mechanism itself is exposed. What we see in Jesus is the ancient pattern that's really been true of all people. And we see, uh, we, we see images of this in, you know, throughout different religions, throughout all kinds of mythology, is there's always this idea that there's, there's someone on the outside, there's someone on the edge that if we can expel that person from our community, then we're going to be righteous. We get to be holy at somebody else's expense. And to a certain extent, this seems to work. That is how people have a sense of righteousness and rightness. How will we know that we are an us if we don't have a them? How will we know that we're the insiders if we don't have an outsider? So having somebody where we can project all of our gunk onto becomes really, really important because the process of doing that we feel clean. We feel holy. And there's nothing righteous about that, but it's a dangerous simulation of righteousness. It always feels good uh, to cleanse yourself on another person in the moment. It's a dangerous simulation, simulation of holiness. Um, so to channel a little bit of Gerard here, what Gerard uh, captures so brilliantly is that what we see through the cross of Jesus is that the horror of that whole scapegoating mechanism is exposed on the cross because now the one that we've scapegoated is the innocent man. Now the one that we've scapegoated is holy and sinless. 
And now we're able to see now, now it's exposed the, all that's so wrong and evil and deprived about this very mechanism. Um, what we see in the cross of Jesus is that we, we're the ones who murder God. We're the ones who reject the son of love. That's what we see. And I think that this passage in particular just does um, is now I, I, I can't think about the cross. I can't think about Isaiah 53 without having these words in mind, because not only has that been part of the shift in my own heart and life in terms of understanding what God has done in the cross, because, you know, and I don't have time for today for maybe a full lecture on the cross. I'll do this another time. I still think there are appropriate ways to think about the cross of Jesus as a sacrifice. I do think he does as a sacrifice for our sins. But it's just it's in a different way than than we think. Um, I think it's it's even true. It's fair to say that Jesus absorbs our sin. That Jesus absorbs all of this. Yes, He absolutely does that. But again, um, we, we're the ones who are doing this to Jesus. Keep in mind, by the way, that long before Jesus is on that cross, God is forgiving people of sin. God forgives people of sin in the Old Testament. Jesus forgives people of sin in the New Testament before He's crucified. So it's not like. God needs a legal loophole in order to be able to forgive us. God was always interested in forgiving us. God's heart was always for us. What the cross is, is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. In that even while we're in the process of torturing and rejecting the son of love in the most extreme way, here is the outstretched hands of God on that cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It is the extreme embodiment of the love of God, and the cross takes that love that always existed and broadcasts it to the entire world. And the cross does. Uh, Paul uses language a lot again. It is actually through the cross, uh, ironically, not just through the resurrection, but specifically through the death of Jesus, that the forces of uh, Satan, death, and hell are defeated. It is through the cross that the victory of God is won. But make no mistake about it, what the cross really reveals to us is not the, um, the anger of God the Father. It reveals our own wrath. It reveals our own tendency to scapegoat. And where this gets real practical, and I want to land just in the last few moments that we have, is uh, I always have to test my own heart in this way because I'm thinking like, I mean, even though I believe this way, I still can recognize on any given day my own need to scapegoat. It's like... Um, if I really do believe in a God who loved me and loved us so much that he sacrificed himself on the cross, then what do I do with the fact that I still need other people on the cross? I think what happens for most of us, you know, is as we grow and change and go through different phases of life, um, the, the people who are on the cross change, right? Like, so at one point it was one group of people and then we think we're enlightened in some way. Now it's a different group of people. So, you know, they kind of, we kind of, the characters move around like it's a little game of musical chairs that we play, but there's always somebody else on that cross. So for somebody, it's, uh, it's an immigrant. For somebody, um, it's a migrant from Mexico. Um, but for somebody else, um, it's, a, it's a, a, some rural person in a Make America Great Again hat. You know, the characters just change, but it's always somebody. And so I have to constantly kind of be checking my own heart um, because no matter how I feel about certain things that happen in the world, what I'm not given permission to do now is to enter into this kind of scapegoating. I don't need that. I don't need to be clean. I don't need to be righteous at somebody else's expense. 
So I think what happens is we have to stay in this mode of kind of, of self-reflection and being careful because I just, I just think about this a lot. Like the very moment that I begin to scapegoat somebody else and got somebody else on the cross, um, especially for me, again, as a person of faith, there, there's something deeply wrong here because I believe that Jesus once and for all is the one who's climbed on that cross. I don't need anybody else to be on a cross. I don't need somebody else to be scapegoated. I don't need somebody else to be wrong for me to be right. <laughs> That's such a liberating revelation, at least it has been for me. I don't need somebody else to be wrong for me to feel right. I don't need there to be any bad guys for me to feel like I'm the good guy, you know? And I think part of what is the power of the cross is that it's supposed to dismantle that whole system inside of us. It's supposed to show the folly of it, that whole idea that somehow that we could be superior or clean or righteous. And we're the, again, we're the insiders because we know who the outsiders are. We know that we're in us because they're them. The cross exposes the essential folly of that whole enterprise. If you want to go deeper into any of these ideas, I would highly recommend another book. Uh, my good friend Brad Jurzak and Michael Harden co-edited a book together called Stricken by God? Um, and then that's, that's taken from Isaiah 53. But it's a wonderful book of essays that reflect very poignantly on cross, uh, the cross of Jesus, atonement theology, how that works. So I think if you're just grappling with some of these ideas the first time, or even if, you know, this is not new to you, that's a great, great volume I would encourage you to check out. But I guess in terms of just kind of my riff for a day, I'm just thinking a lot about who am I still scapegoating? And we want to raise that question for you. Who are you scapegoating right now? Um, is there still a part of you that needs to be right or that needs to be holy or righteous at somebody else's expense? And what would it look like perhaps to lay that down? What would it look like to accept the fact Jesus as the son of love is the one who has died for us all. Jesus is the one who has accepted all of that pain and all of that rejection that we projected onto him. That's already happened. That's already been absorbed. And Christ did that because he loved us. He accepted the ramifications and the implications of all of our sin in that way. So what would it look like today to just let somebody else off the hook to maybe lay that down? I know Cece prayed for us yesterday. I thought that was beautiful. I don't feel like we have to do that every day, but I would love to take just a moment to pray for you in that way and just maybe to be open uh, because I think especially in the kind of climate that we're in right now where everything is very polarized, we just bounce back and forth there all the time, don't we? And uh, outrage is uh, a hell of a drug, my friends. I think it's become so possible to just always be in this constant state of outrage. It kind of feeds this this animal where we're still looking for somebody to scapegoat. And I find, at least for me, I have to be intentional about taking a few minutes each day to just kind of lay that down and uh, sort of just cleanse myself of that, just unload that. So if you allow me to pray for us for just a moment. God, I just thank you for um, the gift of the cross. I thank you that you who had no sin became sin for us. And we see on full display on the cross the links that you went in order to take all of our pain, in order to take all of our sorrow, uh, once again, even all these things that we projected on you, you bore the weight of each of those things. And we thank you for that. I just pray today in particular that you would grant us the grace 
to not scapegoat anybody else, that you would give us that kind of security and that deep assurance that precisely because we are loved by you and we know that we are loved by you, that um, we just don't, we don't need to be on the inside of anything, of any kind of club. We don't need to be accepted by anybody in particular. Um, we don't need to reject anybody in particular to feel like we're right somehow. And I just pray, God, even for the grace, even for um, places where we've legitimately been, been wronged, I pray, God, you would allow us to see those who have wronged us through eyes of grace. And as we pray always in the prayer that Christ gave to the church, that um, we would just remember, first and foremost, God, we're, we ask you to forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give us the grace to do that now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thanks so much for hanging out for episode five of the Zeitcast as we reflect a little bit on Toni Morrison's life and legacy and on the cross. Um, we'll be right back tomorrow. I want to encourage you as always to, if you like what you're hearing, uh, to share it, to review it, to like it. Uh, I do have a Patreon page set up through my website, jonathanmartinwords.com, so certainly appreciate your support that way. And uh, do stay in touch. Let us know. Even uh, always love to hear from you guys um, because we already have a lot more guests, um, folks that you'd like to see on the show, any ideas that you have. Um, we're open to all that and so grateful for all the beautiful engagement so far. So thanks so much for taking some time to be with us, and I'll see you again tomorrow. God bless you guys.